We are continuing our series through Paul's letter to his colleague Titus, there stationed on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. In preparation for our sermon text today, which comes from Titus chapter 3, let us first of all turn to his letter to another church, the church in Rome, the first chapter, Romans 1. I'll read verses 18 to 20 before we turn to our sermon text, Titus 3, verses 4 to the beginning of verse 8. Beginning at verse 18 in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now let us turn to Titus chapter 3. I'll begin at verse 1, although our text, our sermon text for today begins at verse 4, to give us the background, the context. Paul writes to Titus, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading and our understanding of his word. There is no question that deep within the soul of all men everywhere, certain things are known truly about the God who made us. For God made it 
evident to us. Now, unbelievers typically deny that whenever it's put to them that way. That's why they're unbelievers and why the Bible calls them fools. As in fact, we all once were. But there are attributes of the living and true God, our maker, that shape the everyday experiences of everyone born into the world, regardless of our Christian faith or lack thereof. Perhaps a few questions might help bring this into focus for us. Let's start at the very beginning of our experiences. Did you put yourself together in the womb of your mother? Well, then who did? Did your mom and dad do that? Well, doubtless they had something to do with it. But I'm a dad and I have absolutely no idea how to put together a single cell, much less differentiate in a very dark and private place a bone cell from that of a muscle or the eye or the liver. I don't even know what a pancreas does. But there it is. There's one within me. There's one within you. There's one within each of your children. And it's designed to keep you healthy. To keep you alive. And so we have to ask ourselves, is this wonderful machine, the human body, with parts that we never see, with functions that we never fully understand, never even have to understand in order to live a good and a happy life. Is this merely the product of time plus matter plus chance? Or is it a matter of intelligent human beings figuring out how to put little people together and then make them grow generation after generation for thousands of years? Is that the way it was? What if there had been, somewhere along the line of human history, what if there had been an especially inept, an especially dumb generation of people who couldn't figure out this business of how meiosis or the Krebs cycle or any other physiological process in the, the human body works? not even knowing where the raw material for this new baby was going to come from. Not doing their homework would have spelled the end of the species in that generation if it were up to us to know these things and to do them ourselves. Try as they might to assemble a baby in their own wisdom, they just couldn't get it right. They couldn't put together a single child and that would be the end of the species. The end of humanity if its continuance were left entirely to us. Doesn't it seem more reasonable that your being here today, the person that you are, is the sovereign work of an all-wise, all-seeing, 
creator who knits us together where no one else can see or know what's going on. And then those many different biochemical processes going on within you over the, over your lifespan produce growth, don't they? Not only biological growth, but emotional growth and intellectual growth. And you learn things. And you fall in love. And you make commitments. All while this earth, for which we seem so well suited, this earth spins on its axis around the sun and the sun and its galaxy with perfect regularity, producing not only sunrises and sunsets, but night skies that somehow don't seem to be moved by random natural forces. And with growing intellects, we observe that throughout recorded history, species, whatever their lovely and fascinating variations, species have remained distinct from one another. Each individual born or hatched according to its kind. Now this is a very long introduction, and by it I mean to show you only this. That there are natural things going on within us and around us 24-7 that declare the glory of God even to the natural mind. There are testimonials we can observe in nature about God, the author of nature. Volcanic eruptions and hurricanes and earthquakes and tsunamis testify in some small measure of his power at work in the world. Why else would anyone absolutely unacquainted with the Bible or the Christian faith say, at such times of disaster... How could God let this happen? You hear it all the time. When they lose their homes, when they lose loved ones. They don't tell the news reporters who are interviewing them, well, after all, random forces working randomly caused this shifting of the earth's crust. And so here we are. No, that's not the way people respond. Their question testifies that they think deep within themselves that God had something to do with it. But his power isn't all that nature teaches us about God. A close look at a single tiny orchid or the rainbow and the spray of a waterfall testifies of his love for beauty. The design of the systems of the human body and their collaborative functions testify of his wisdom. The ending of these functions in biological death declare him to be the righteous judge and jury and executioner of all things living. Who can stay his hand or ask him, what doest thou? After all, if death were just a random thing, if it were just a matter of chance, then how is it we haven't found among the billions and billions of people born throughout history one single unbeliever from long ages past 
who somehow randomly escaped it. Nature itself tells each passing generation it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. In this case, just like all the others I've mentioned, Scripture only confirms what we already knew. These are just a few of the things nature teaches us about the character and providential work of God, things that unregenerate men suppress within themselves to their own condemnation. And now we come to the point of today's passage from Titus chapter 3. And this is the point. The Christian gospel is about the things that nature cannot teach us. The Christian gospel is about the things that nature can't teach us specially revealed things that deal with historical time and space events, things that haven't appeared equally clearly to people of all ages, as his power and wisdom and beauty have, but rather things that have now appeared for the first time, things needing to be announced, good news to be circulated in preaching to the ends of the earth, things that every man and woman and child need to hear, not in order to know God, but in order to know him savingly. To know God not merely as God my maker and judge, but as God my maker and redeemer and friend. This is a trustworthy statement. Paul writes, in retrospect over verses 4 through 7. It's a faithful word. Believe it and rest in it and put all your confidence in it that when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. He saved us. There are many things nature cannot teach us about God's character and work that the gospel of Jesus Christ does teach us. This book makes certain things explicitly clear that would otherwise remain forever dark and hidden to the human mind. Let me suggest to you five things that spring from this wonderful four-verse summary of the gospel. That's what it is, today's sermon text. It's a summary of the gospel. Five things the gospel teaches us that take us beyond the lessons that are evident in nature. First, then, the Christian gospel alone teaches us the kindness and love of God toward men and women. Nature doesn't teach us that. The Christian gospel alone teaches us the kindness and love of God toward 
men and women, volcanoes and waterfalls and our ability to breathe and think and reproduce are all little signs along the way that point us to other things about him. But what in the course of the natural man's life demonstrates that God is kind to him? All these other things about God's divine nature we can see, we can infer them from the natural evidence, even as unbelievers, which is why our suppressing them in unrighteous makes us so guilty, so culpable. But were it not for the supernatural revelation of God in Christ, were it not for the Bible's portrayal of a Savior who loved and welcomed children, who healed blind beggars and forgave women caught in adultery, were it not for its description of this atoning Savior nailed to a cross on a certain day of history, were it not for these things taught only in the Bible, you and I would spend every day, every moment of our lives, in perfect blindness toward his kindness. We wouldn't know it. And we'd think this, and we'd think that about him and his disposition toward us, but all of it would be guesswork. And the hurricanes and the wildflowers would give us very mixed signals about the attitude of this God toward his creation, wouldn't it? Does he love us or does he not? Does he care for us or does he not? I guess it all depends on the day or it depends upon the weather or what I'm experiencing at this moment. The scripture teaches in a way that nature cannot, that God our Savior is the great philanthropist. Now that may seem a rather trite and shallow description of the Almighty God who created us, but philanthropist is exactly the Greek word Paul uses to describe God's Love for mankind. In due time, his kindness and philanthropia appeared. And so here's the second thing nature can't teach us about God. Not only that he's kind and disposed to love men, but that this kindness and benevolence burst upon the scene at a specific moment of human history. God our Savior isn't some cosmic clockmaker who wound up his creation in the beginning and then left it to work on its own gears and springs. He's a loving philanthropist. He's a kind benefactor and patron and lover of men who in the fullness of time kept his ancient promises and literally made his epiphany in the city of David in the days of Caesar Augustus when Quirinius was governor of Syria. God our Savior came in the flesh. 
He came. Isn't that just what the old priest Zacharias knew was coming to pass as he rejoiced over his newborn son, John, cousin to the Savior? He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And he goes on to say to this little babe that he's holding in his arms, to John, his infant son, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The old man Zacharias knew his Bible, didn't he? It shaped all his thinking. And by the scripture that he knew and loved, he was able to discern the signs of the times that the unutterable kindness and love of God for men was about to make its grand appearance in Israel. The world into which this kindness and love came was a world of lost men going their own lost ways, carving out their own gods, their own religions, their own philosophies. spiritually blind and lost and perishing. Perishing not only for the things they knew about God, for the things they didn't know. There were, in that first century A.D., there were cults of sex, cults of legalism, the cults of power and politics, the cults of the good deed-doers, the old cults of the Roman gods, the new mystery cults of the East, and there were a hundred variations on a theme. Men have always been very religious. And even as I go down the menu of human suffering and shame born at the hands of all these dumb idols... You understand, perhaps, that in 2,000 years, the human condition is ever the same. It hasn't changed. Whatever your pet philosophy today, whatever your attraction to this trend or that, this game or that, this technology or that, what men need, what you and I need, is a Savior who makes his appearance in power and grace and kindness and love. So the gospel teaches us that God is loving and kind to men. It teaches us that this God made his appearance on the stage of human history. And thirdly, it teaches us that once upon that stage, in full sight of a watching world that recorded the events of Jesus' life and ministry, 
He saved us. He saved us. Certainly the natural world has no power to teach us this particular lesson, does it? The human conscience has its own ways of dealing with guilt. And not one of them has anything to do with another man dying on a cross in my place. When it comes to sin, nature teaches us denial. And whatever the denial of our actual sins can't accommodate, nature teaches us that excusing them will will excuse our own sins that we can't deny. And whatever can't be excused can be made up for somehow by us. Okay, Mr. Smith, so I did steal your car, but here it is back again. Just a scratch or two, just a couple of dents on the passenger side from where I hit the fence when the police were after me. But I filled up the tank for you. So we're even again, aren't we? Or, okay, Mrs. Jones, so I had an illicit affair with your husband. Let me make it up to you. Let me make some restitution. Let me pray some prayer. Let me do some good deed in the righteousness of my own good heart. And let me get myself out of this scrape. Fallen human natures full of ridiculous ideas on how to handle the guilt and pollution of our sins. So thanks be to God for his great kindness and love for men. And that when he came, he came to save. Now what's this mean? He saved us. means a rescue. It's a rescue. It means pulling your chestnuts out of the fire that you've gotten yourself into, pulling you out of the mess that you've made of things. He saved you out of it, and now you're safe. You're safe from sin, safe from guilt, safe from pollution, safe from the miseries of unforgiven sin in this world and safe from condemnation and hell in the world to come. It is as though, by the work of Jesus, it is as though it had never happened. It's as though you were born again. And began to live life as an entirely new creature, made anew in the image of God. As though the old had been done away with, drowned in the sea of God's forgetfulness. It is as though all had become perfectly new.
That's very good news for sinners, isn't it? Why aren't sinners beating down the doors of our churches to hear this good news? Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, through him alone, you are safe. And all this according to his mercy, verse 5. It would have been natural for these lazy, good-for-nothing Cretans, just as it's natural for lazy, good-for-nothing Americans today, to think that God is somehow bound to save us. That he's under some moral obligation to save us. After all, says the narcissist, after all, it's me we're talking about. Why wouldn't he want to be kind to me? Why wouldn't he want to love me? Why wouldn't he go out of his way to save me? And the simple unflattering answer is, he wouldn't because he's holy. He loves justice and we spend our natural lives sinning against him, virtually begging for his justice to be spent on us. We live every moment on the knife edge of his wrath and curse. So thanks be to God, everlasting thanks be to God for his mercy. The answer as to why he saves us lies with him, not with you, not with me. We didn't move him to be good to us. He is good. We didn't move him to show us compassion. He is compassionate. Nothing in all his creation can move this almighty God, our creator. He moves himself. He decides himself and it's his character, not yours and not mine, that determines what is to be done with men and nations. Are you born again today? Are you cleansed from your sins? Are you renewed? Are you living as a new creation? Then all the benefits you enjoy in your happy situation flow from this one single fountainhead to which you added not one drop that according to his mercy... He saved us. A fourth thing the gospel teaches us that nature cannot is that God's philanthropy, his saving the sinners that he loves, is the work of God triune. God triune. One God neither a monolithic God nor many gods, but one God eternally living in blessed Trinity. God our Father is called Savior in the words of verse 4. 
It was his kindness and love for men that moved him to send Jesus Christ, our Savior, verse 6, into the world. So that once justice was served and penalty paid at the cross, he might declare us not guilty. Verse 7. So that he might now pour out within us into our own life experience his Holy Spirit. Verse 5. For the washing of new birth and the renewal of our souls. We're well accustomed to calling Jesus Savior, aren't we? And so he is. He is. He's the atoning sacrifice. He's the object of all saving faith. No one comes to the Father except by him. And so also, according to verse 4, so also is the Father called Savior. The Father, whose kindness and philanthropy set the wheels of this rescue into motion. And so also is the Holy Spirit, Savior, by whose direct agency the benefits of the cross are applied to you as you eat your breakfast, as you raise your children, as you go to work, as you go to worship and manage your money and face your illnesses and fight the residual longings of sin. Your being saved and kept safe from here to eternity is the comprehensive work of God triune. And that nature alone could never tell you. A fifth thing we learn from this passage, the last one we'll consider today, is the whole final point of God's kind philanthropy. What's the object that he had in mind when he went forth from heaven to save? What did he intend to do? Was, it, was he after our personal health and wealth? Was that what he was after? Was it to grow megachurches? Was it to sell books? Was it to give us everything we might possibly want in our marriages and children and places of employment? Perhaps we Christians don't give this matter of the goal of our salvation the consideration that we should. Perhaps if we did, it would shape our lives into something very different than they are. Something less chronically disappointed and more thankful, more persevering. Perhaps it would result in more lovely Christian lives, more holy. Perhaps we ought to consider this question more carefully. Why does he save us? Because it blows the mind what God had in mind by saving us. Let's think this through. Think way back to the beginning of this series weeks ago. Remember why Paul wrote this letter to Titus? Remember its theme statement back in chapter 1, verse 2? He says, I'm writing you, Titus. I'm writing you upon the hope of eternal life. 
That's what this letter is about. The hope of eternal life. And the rest of the letter describes the sound doctrine that promotes and the godly living that practices this hope of eternal life. The hope of every Christian. What did God triune have in mind when he went forth to save? This lover of men, the best friend of sinners, went forth in his kindness and mercy to save us that we might be made heirs according to that hope. That we might be made heirs. When I was married, I had a will drawn up, and that will names certain persons to be the beneficiaries at my death. While I live, those persons benefit in certain intangible ways, I hope, but when I die, their benefits will suddenly become tangible real entitlements that they can see, that they can count, that they can use. Christ's death on a cross, the fireworks grand finale of God's great love for sinners, it secured as no smaller measure could. It secured all the benefits accruing to his chosen bride, the church. Think of it. Reflect on it. He made himself poor. Even to death and the breaking of fellowship with his father. In order to make you rich. He was badly roughed up. To make you clean. To make you new. To make you right at last with God. Eternal life isn't after all the inheritance of the world at large, is it? Peace with God isn't the common property of all men everywhere. Knowledge of the Holy One belongs to whomsoever he gives it. By grace, through faith, and by his going forth to save, this precious blood-bought inheritance becomes the property of each named Air. And what about you? Not the person sitting next to you, but what about you? Are you, according to Christ's last will and testament, named heir of these things? Are you listed among the children of God? Did the death of Jesus Christ secure anything sure and lasting for you? Well, how's a man or woman to know? How are we to know? In his kindness, the great lover and savior of men thought of that too. Not only to secure our redemption, but also to assure us of it. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and joint heirs 
with Christ. And so, beloved, on the authority, certainly not of nature, not of myself as a mere mortal, but on the authority of God triune, lover of men, I can solemnly assure you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Never in all this broken and disappointing world will you hear a word more worthy of your trust. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have reached into this created world that had gone so far astray. And you revealed your purposes for your elect. Purposes not to cast us off but to save us, to buy us back, to bring us to your table, to bring us into your family, that we might know all of the benefits of the children of God. We marvel when we reflect upon it, but we thank you so much that you have given us all the Sabbath day the Christian Sabbath, to rest and think on these things, that they might have their due impact upon our thoughts, our words, our deeds, the direction of our lives. Enable us to build upon these things. And so when the floods do assail us, when they lift up their voices, when they suggest counter things, to us. We might rest firmly in the work and person of our Lord Jesus Christ. These things we humbly ask in his precious name. Amen.